Praise the Lord. This is our second tape in a four-tape album entitled God Wants You Well. On our first tape, we dealt with the fact that healing is a part of the atonement of Christ. And we tried to show that healing is not a separate issue from salvation, that the very Greek word that was used for salvation over a hundred times in the New Testament was also translated healed and made whole and save in reference to healing the sick. And so God never intended for what Jesus accomplished to be broken into different elements and said, we're going to accept the forgiveness of sins, but reject healing and prosperity and deliverance. No, it's all actually a package deal. And it's wrong for the church to present healing as some fringe benefit that could happen, but it's certainly not a part of our salvation. It's just up to God whether he chooses to heal or not. God's will is to heal you just as much as it is to forgive you. God wants you to resist sickness and disease just as much as he wants you to resist sin. And those are strong statements, but that's what we've talked about on the first tape. You know, I, I've thought uh, often about why anybody would fight against healing. You know, it seems to be a, a universal desire to be well. And, I mean, you can prove that by just looking at the effort that people go to to try and get their bodies well. I mean, they spend untold amount of money on operations, doctor's visits, medication. Medication is just a, a huge area where people are taking these drugs. The side effects, I don't know if you're like me, but I've seen advertisements on television where the side effects of the medication are so terrible that I think, man, I'd rather be sick than to have these side effects. And yet people will put up with terrible side effects. They will take radiation and chemotherapy that causes their hair to fall out. They'll take drugs that make them swell. They will literally have parts of their bodies cut off in an effort to live. I mean, it's just universal. Nobody likes sickness. Even hypochondriacs don't like it. They may have a fear of it that draws them into it and causes them to obsess, but they don't like it. People universally hate sickness and disease, and I believe that that's because God did not create man to die. Death was something man chose, but it wasn't something that God chose. God originally intended for our bodies to live forever, and I've actually read some medical things that say that the body is capable of healing itself and repairing itself, and the medical profession really cannot understand why the body doesn't live forever. Of course, there's these invasive things, diseases and germs and stuff, but I mean, the capacity is there to be able to overcome it. And I believe that God's original plan was for us never to be sick. Sickness was not a part of God's plan. That was part of what we chose And so God created a God-given desire on the inside of every person for health. People don't like sickness. So God doesn't like it. People don't like it. Why is it that some people fight against God being a healer? They will actually say that you are of the devil if you believe that God heals today, that God doesn't do that. Why would somebody say that when it's a universal need Everybody wants it. Why would we credit God with something like that? 
And then there's lesser manifestations of this same attitude. They may not say that you're of the devil if you are believing for healing or laying hands on people and believing for them to be healed. But they would certainly say it's not God's will every single time to heal. Why would they say that when in the first tape, I've already proven to my satisfaction that healing is a part of the atonement and that God provided for our healing of our bodies just as much as he provided for our forgiveness of sins. With this being so obvious, why is it that people fight against healing? And there's multiple reasons. One of them, I believe, is wrong teaching. We've been prejudiced and biased through wrong teaching. But why would people teach differently? Why would they teach against healing? And this is going to be probably an oversimplification and Some people may think I'm mean or belligerent with this, but it's not intended to be that way at all. But it's meant to be enlightening, to take the blinders off. I believe that the bottom line of why people resist healing being in the atonement and it being God's will to heal every time, the bottom line is that it's convenient to believe that way. It's a cop-out. Again, that may be too simple. There may be some sincere people who have been taught wrong, and there could be variations here, but I think that the bottom line of this teaching is against healing is because it's a cop-out, because it puts responsibility on us. If God has provided healing for us, well, then it's very obvious that not everybody's healed. So the question comes up, if God wants you well, then why aren't you well? And it means that we have to accept some degree of responsibility. I'm going to deal with this later when I talk about why isn't everyone healed. That'll be the next tape in the series. But uh, we do have to accept some responsibility. And in an effort to dodge responsibility and guilt, we simply say, well, it must not be God's will. But that certainly is not true. People will say, well, if God wanted people healed, they'd be healed whether you or I pray for them or not. That's not true. Look at forgiveness of sins. It's very obvious in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You can't make it any clearer than that, that it is God's will for people to be saved. And yet, not everybody is saved. Jesus even prophesied that there would be more people who enter by the broad gate unto destruction than by the narrow gate unto everlasting life. So God's will concerning salvation doesn't automatically come to pass. Why? Because God doesn't want to save some? No, it says he's willing that all men come to the repentance and to the knowledge of God. It is not God's will that people die and go to hell, but he gave us a choice, and people go to hell because they reject God's choice. Some reject it blatantly, openly, in rebellion against God. Some reject it because they're taught the wrong thing, and they are trusting in church membership, in their own good works and stuff. They've been deceived, but nonetheless, it's their choices that cause them to miss it. God is not wanting anyone to go to hell. And also, God is not wanting anyone to be sick. But are there people sick? Certainly there are. It's because some people are in total rebellion towards God and his ways, and they're reaping what they sow. Other people are desiring healing and still falling short 
because they don't understand things properly. Just the same as some people think that being a good person and attending a church and being water baptized as an infant will produce salvation in their life. They may be sincere, but they are sincerely wrong. That is not true. And so it is not God's will for people to perish. It's also not God's will for people to be sick. But people are sick and people are perishing, not because God wills it, but because we don't understand. And we have to accept that it is our failure, not God's failure, that sends people to hell and also causes us to be sick. And a failure to accept that responsibility is, I believe, at the root of why people fight against healing. They do not want to accept that responsibility. They don't want to confront the fact that you're saying that a parent, a child, a loved one died and that we could have done something about it, that you're saying that it's my fault that this person I love has suffered with sickness and disease or has died. Well, I'm not saying it's your fault directly. Some cases it could be, but in most cases it's not an individual sin, but it's the sin that has corrupted the world. The sin that caused germs and viruses and fungus and infection and things like that. That was never a part of God's original plan for mankind. That is a perversion of nature, and it happened through sin, yes, but maybe not an individual sin, the collective sin that has corrupted the entire system. And even though it may not be something we did individually that caused it, there is always something we can do individually to overcome that perversion and to walk in health. You know, there was an example where I had some people in a church that I pastored. This was back probably in uh, the early 70s, somewhere around 73 or 74. And there was a woman who had a child who was born mongoloid. This happened because she was a very small woman. She was living in Guatemala. And she, on the way to the hospital, delivered this baby and it caused brain damage, and the child was born mongoloid. It had an immune deficiency type of thing. The doctor said if the child ever got a cold, he would be dead. There was nothing they could do for him, and they didn't expect him to live. He just kept living. At the time I met them, the child was four years old. He finally did get a cold. I was over praying for him to be healed, and the child actually died while I was holding him in my arms. And we sat there with the parents and prayed for this child to be raised from the dead for hours. We did everything that I knew to do. And eventually we finally called somebody. The police showed up and it was a miracle that we didn't all get sent to jail. The only reason we really didn't was because they had doctor's reports and stuff to prove. The doctors had said if he gets sick, if he gets an infection, just keep him at home because there's nothing we can do for him. And so because of that, they let us go. And it was a very tragic situation. The parents asked me to do a funeral. And so at the funeral, I was groping for something that would comfort the parents and comfort me. I took it personally. And I can tell you that it would have been comforting momentarily to just say, well, it couldn't have been us that missed it. I gave it everything I've got. It couldn't be you that missed it. I mean, these people were grieving, and it certainly wasn't any good to point the finger at them and say it's your fault. 
And it would have been comforting just to say, well, God works in mysterious ways. God must have wanted your son in heaven. He needed him there. It would have been comforting to come up with some of these cliches and things that you hear commonly reported uh, in religion. But I had to be honest with Scripture, and I told those parents, I said, I don't believe this was God's will. God did not kill your son. God didn't allow this to happen. This is Satan that snuffed his life out. I did comfort them by saying it doesn't matter. Even if Satan won the battle, he didn't win the war. And I took scriptures about how that this child was in the presence of God from Second Samuel chapter 12 and other places. And I ministered hope about how that the boy was with Jesus and all of these things. But when it came to why it happened, I basically said it's either my fault, your fault, both of ours fault, things that we don't understand. I said, I don't know what it is, but I can guarantee you it's not God. And I can tell you that that was not as comforting if I would have just said, well, God worked in mysterious ways. God allowed it. God is going to, you know, he did this to us for some reason. That might have given momentary comfort, but the Bible says that you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. God's word is truth. And I couldn't find in there where Jesus made people sick and all of these things that we taught on the first tape. And I just had to tell them that I don't know where the problem is, but it's not God. Satan beat us. He won a battle. He didn't win the war. The boy's with Jesus. But I said it was not God's will. Because I told these people the truth, they uh, prayed. God showed them some things that it's it's really immaterial what it was, but The Lord showed them things where they had allowed fear and all kinds of things to come in, and it hindered their faith and kept them from receiving the miracle that they needed. And because they got the truth, they repented of that. They were able to overcome that fear, deal with it. The doctors had told the woman the reason that the boy was mongoloid was because she was so small that the baby should have been taken cesarean. They said she should never get pregnant again because she was so small. And if she did, it would have to be taken cesarean. But they said that you'll probably lose the baby and your life. So they told her to never have another child. Well, that's been, like I said, back in 1973 or 74. And she's had three or four more children since then. Recently, she sent me a picture of all of her children who graduated high school and were in college And, you know, she had them all natural childbirth at home without any doctor's help because she knew that no doctor after seeing her records would ever allow her to have it. So she just believed God. And instead of going childless and living her entire life in bitterness and wondering, God, why did you do this? She found out God wasn't the author of that sickness and disease. She got hold of the truth. The truth set her free and she was able to go on and have other children. And I tell you, I understand why people want to say that surely this must have been God's will, because that makes us look good. It doesn't make us a failure. It's a cop-out. It's an easy way out. I understand it, and I've been tempted to do the same thing. But I'm telling you, it's not God who makes people sick. It's not God who fails to heal people. It's us who fail to receive. I've got a six-tape album that fits perfectly right here. It's entitled, You've Already Got It. And even though it's applied generally to the entire Christian life, I use a lot of examples of healing 
and a lot of teaching about healing to prove that God is already healed. It's not a matter of God giving healing. It's a matter of us reaching out and by faith receiving healing. And that six-tape album entitled You've Already Got It would really reinforce and make this point that we're talking about right here. Let me go on and talk about Paul's thorn in the flesh. This is something that any time I talk about physical healing, I have somebody bring up, well, what about Paul's thorn in the flesh? God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. God made him sick, and he tried to believe for healing and wasn't healed. And he was a great man of God. Now, if God didn't heal Paul, who are we to think that he's going to heal us? Well, this is not an accurate interpretation of Paul's thorn in the flesh. The scripture does not say that Paul's thorn in the flesh was sickness. You can't find that. You can uh, listen to people who will say that, but that's not what the scripture says. Let me turn over and share these passages of scripture. In the Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul begins to talk about some of the abundance of revelations that he had had, etc. And then he said in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, there's two ways that I have heard this explained that would be consistent with the fact that God is not the one who puts sickness on you. One way who many people I really respect say this, is that Paul's thorn in the flesh was sickness, and God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. This wasn't God saying you have to bear up with it, but he says, Paul, you've already got my power. My grace, my ability is there. Resist it and overcome it. And those people would say that Paul failed in this attempt, that God gave him the grace to overcome it, and he just didn't simply use it. And if you interpret it that way, well, then that would again say that God had power available, but we just don't always use it. Now, I would agree that that is true, that God has given us the ability to overcome sickness, but not everybody uses it, and that doesn't mean that they're a terrible person or that they're a failure. None of us are doing everything perfectly. And so I could accept that, but I want to present to you another slant on this, that I've prayed about this, and I really believe that this is what God told me about this whole thing. First of all, in chapter 12, Verse 7, Paul said, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, comma, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now he said very clearly that this was the messenger of Satan. He did not say that this was from God. He said this was from the devil. And yet people just inevitably say that this is God that gave this to Paul. Paul made it very clear. I mean, these words mean something. He said it was the messenger. The word for messenger here is the exact same word, the Greek word that we get angel from. It was a demonic messenger, a demonic angel that buffeted Paul. Now, the reason people suppose 
that God gave this to him is because it says in this verse that it came because of the abundance of the revelations, lest he should be exalted above measure. And so they just automatically assume that this is talking about that the thorn in the flesh was to keep Paul humble. They associate humility with God, with a good thing. And so anything that humbled him, this had to be God that was humbling him. But, you know, there is also a godly type of exaltation. There's many times in Scripture, Old Testament and New, in the New Testament, First Peter chapter 5, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. There's a number of places that talk about being exalted, being lifted up. Well, this is what Paul said. He says, lest I should be exalted. I don't think that his exalted here is talking about pride. Some people would say Paul had a real problem with pride and arrogancy, and so God gave him this thorn in the flesh to just break him and keep him humble. Well, number one, that's not a godly principle. The Bible says humble yourself. When God does it to you, that's not humility. That's humiliation. Humility is not something that you can force on a person. It has to come from the inside out. I believe that this is talking about Paul was being glorified. Everywhere he went, he saw people raised from the dead. He saw blind eyes open. He saw miracles. It says those that have turned the world upside down have come here also. Paul was being exalted. There was so much power and anointing on his life that it was drawing people to the Lord. They say, I want to be like Paul. I want to have the ability to overcome, to be put into jail, and an earthquake come and set them free. And just every time something happened, Paul saw it turn around for his good. People were seeing this, and they say, man, I want that power in my life. Satan saw that Paul was drawing so many people to the Lord because he was walking in so much absolute victory that Satan wanted to debase him. Satan wanted to do something to keep him from being exalted. And that's what this is talking about. Lest he be exalted above measure, Satan gave him a thorn in the flesh. It makes it very clear that this was from Satan and not from God. And let me just put a little P.S. here. Anybody who wants to claim that they're like the Apostle Paul and that they've got a sickness and that this is their thorn in the flesh and that they are supposed to bear it, Remember, Paul said it came because of the abundance of the revelations that he had. Paul wrote half of the New Testament. And it was because of his abundant revelations that this came. Now, it came from Satan, not from God, but still, it only came because he had such an abundance of revelation. So really, any person who hasn't had abundant revelations the way Paul has shouldn't be hiding behind his thorn in the flesh. I have met people who are drug addicts, dopers, living in prostitution, adultery, all kinds of things. And when I start trying to talk to them about receiving from God and stuff, they'll say, well, you know, I've got a thorn in the flesh like the Apostle Paul. And I mean, they don't even have a relationship with God and they're claiming Paul's thorn in the flesh. You need to crawl out from under there. You need to quit hiding behind his thorn in the flesh unless you have so much revelation that, you know, you could write half of the New Testament. Actually, Paul's thorn in the flesh, if you just took that prerequisite right there, most people ought to just put this aside and say, well, I don't know what happened to Paul, but that's not my problem. But let's go on and look at this. It says it was a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him. The reason people 
think this was sickness is because the word infirmities is used twice here in this passage of Scripture. In verse 9, he says, After Jesus had told him, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul said, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Then in verse 10 it says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The word infirmity is nearly universally used today to refer to some type of a sickness. You say this person's got an infirmity. We even call an infirmary a place where you send sick people. And so the word infirmity today has the connotation with it that nearly exclusively applies to sickness. But in the time that the King James Bible was written, the word infirmity was not limited to sickness. Matter of fact, you can see a scriptural example where the word infirmity is used to refer to something besides sickness. Over in Romans chapter 8 and in verse 26, The scripture there says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Then there's a colon. And it says, For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. And then there's another colon. And so what this is talking about is that in an infirmity, it describes what it is, not knowing how to pray as you ought. If you look the word infirmity up in the dictionary, it not only means a sickness, but it can mean any weakness or inadequacy. And that's the way that it was used in Romans 8.26. Not knowing how to pray for something is an infirmity. And so here, when Paul was talking about, I glory in my infirmities, we suppose this is talking about sickness. But if we look at the context of this passage of Scripture, I believe you'll see that it is not talking about sickness. Remember that men put in the chapter and verse divisions for the purpose of reference, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you've got to remember that the letter that we call 2 Corinthians was one letter that was not broken up by chapter divisions. In what we call 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talked about infirmities. He said in chapter 11, verse 30, If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. Here's that exact same word used And he gave a definition or an explanation about what he was calling an infirmity. Listen to his list of infirmities. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant, in stripes above measure. Now he's listing what he's calling infirmities. Just a few verses later, he'll summarize all of this by saying, I'm going to glory in these infirmities. So here's what he's calling an infirmity in labors more abundant. In other words, hard work. That was an infirmity. It caused weakness, stress, problems in his life, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths off. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. That means five times he got beat with 39 stripes. Three times I was beaten with rods. This is where they hang you up and they took something similar to a metal rod and they literally broke all of the bones in the feet. Once I was stoned. And this is in Acts chapter 15, I believe it is. 
and uh, he was stoned, and I personally believe he was dead. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils in water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is offended, and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities." All of those things he listed were all talking about persecution, hardships that he endured for the cause of Christ. And so he had just said this, and then only about eight verses later, he says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. If you take it in context, infirmities here are talking about all of the hardships that he suffered from the gospel. And that's consistent with one of the definitions of infirmity. It's an older definition, but it's a definition nonetheless. And uh, I believe that it's a wrong assumption to just take the word infirmity and believe that that refers to sickness. In context, he made it very clear that it didn't. Romans 8.26 is very clearly using the word infirmity to refer to a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding about what to do. So, What this is saying is Paul's thorn in the flesh here is just talking about that it was a messenger of Satan. It doesn't specify what it was. And the reason people jump to the conclusion it was sickness is because of that word infirmity. I've shown you that in context it was used in a different way. And here in the 10th verse, it makes it very clear. It says in verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. There are five things listed. The first one is the word infirmity, which some people could think was referring to physical sickness. It's used that way sometimes. But the other four things are reproaches, necessities, persecutions, and distresses. Every one of those, it makes it very clear that this is not talking about some physical sickness, but rather some hardship or persecution that he was being dealt with. So if you take the word infirmities and use it in context to refer to hardships, then you know what? That 10th verse would be consistent if he's using infirmities to refer to some hardship. Because all of the others are referring to that. Reproaches, that's a hardship. Necessities, that's doing without certain things for the gospel's sake. Persecutions, distresses. See, all of those things would be consistent. If he's using the word infirmity to refer to sickness, that would be inconsistent with the other things that he's listed right here. You know what? I really believe that the word infirmities is referring to here is talking about the hardships that he suffered for the cause of the Lord And another thing that would bring this out that it's not talking about physical sickness is this phrase, thorn in the flesh. Many of us just don't know the Word of God the way we should, but to the Jews that Paul was writing to in the um, early books of the Old Testament, there was a term, thorn in the flesh, that was used three different times. Let me just read some of these to you. In Numbers chapter 33, verse 55, Moses said, 
But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your side and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. He was talking about people. They would persecute them. They would corrupt them, that they would be stained and tainted through these pagan people if they let them live. In Joshua chapter 23, verse 13, it says, Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. That's because they didn't obey God. God says, all right, the prophecy that Moses gave in Numbers 33:55 is going to come to pass. And he referred once again to people as being scourges in their sides or thorns in their eyes. In Judges chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Wherefore I also said I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And so here's three Old Testament references that I'm convinced the people Paul was writing to were aware of this terminology. In other words, when he said, There were a thorn in my flesh, immediately they went back to the imagery of Numbers 33:55, Joshua and Judges chapter 2. They immediately thought of this, and it referred to people. So what I believe that this passage of Scripture is saying is that there was a demonic angel, a messenger from Satan, that stirred up persecution everywhere Paul went. And Paul made reference to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that it looks like, man, they suffer more than anybody else. The people they minister to are blessed, but they themselves are considered to be, you know, the scourges of the earth. They're despised, but the people they minister to are esteemed and blessed. In other words, Paul was talking about his hardships, his persecution that he endured. And I believe that that's what this messenger did. The demonic messenger just gave him a double dose of persecution. And once again, the reason behind it was these people were seeing Paul walk in victory, but he also had more persecution. He was fought against. He went through shipwrecks, beatings, stonings, imprisonment, rejection, criticized. And Satan used this opposition against him that even though there was the power of God in manifestation, it was not without a price. And it made people think twice. And Satan was trying to do this to turn people away from his message. They may have even recognized that it's true, but man, I'm not sure I'd like to suffer the way Paul did. And so Paul besought the Lord three times to remove this thorn in the flesh, the demonic angel that stirred up persecution through people. That's what a thorn in the flesh was in Old Testament imagery. And Paul asked Jesus three times to remove it, and the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you. I believe what this is referring to is that, you know what, we are redeemed from sickness, but we are not redeemed from persecution. Matter of fact, Paul later said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, he said, Yea, all of those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. At the time that Paul was asking this, and it's recorded here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I don't believe that Paul had that full revelation yet. Instead of Paul not being able to receive what God had provided for him, I believe Paul was going for it to such a degree. He was going for the high mark, the high prize 
that God had given him as revealed in Philippians chapter 3. Paul was even trying to get free from persecution. He was trying to stop persecution. And finally, the Lord told him, Paul, you aren't redeemed from persecution, but I'll give you the grace to deal with it. Just think, if God redeemed us from persecution, if he stopped all of our persecutors, there never would have been an apostle Paul because the apostle Paul was a persecutor that was participating in the stoning death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And if God would have just wiped out all of the persecutors, there never would have been an apostle Paul. And so God doesn't just stop all of our persecutors, but rather he shows people that as we continue to love them and turn the other cheek and continue to love God despite their threats, it's a testimony and God uses it. So we aren't redeemed from persecution, but we are redeemed from sickness. Paul did not have, in my opinion, my interpretation of this, he did not have some sickness, as some people would teach, that God refused to heal him of. Therefore, we can't expect to be healed of all sicknesses. No, that's not true. His thorn in the flesh wasn't even a sickness. Now, some people may say, I've heard people go on and say, well, now, wait a minute. Over in Galatians chapter 4, it talks about Paul having some eye disease. And I've heard some theologians that theorized that Paul had an ancient Aramaic disease that caused runny, puffy eyes, and he had constant eye problems. And they try and verify that in Galatians chapter 4. Let me read this passage of Scripture to you. It says in Galatians chapter 4, Verse 12, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. You have not injured me at all. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despise not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Now, in verse 13, he says, you know how through infirmity of the flesh. The terminology here, again, is infirmity, but he specifies of the flesh. In other words, I believe that this infirmity isn't talking about a lack of understanding, a hardship that he endured, but I believe that this literally is talking about some type of a physical problem. And it's because, he says, infirmity of the flesh. He qualified it, and it uses that same terminology in the next verse. And so somebody's saying, well, see right here, he did have an infirmity. Well, yeah, he had a problem right here. But notice he said that I preached the gospel unto you at the first with this infirmity in the flesh, implying that it wasn't something that was long term and that God wouldn't heal him of. In other words, it was a temporary thing. And it goes on to say in verse 15, I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. So some people have said, now see, he's talking about an eye problem here, an infirmity of the flesh, and so they theorize that this is a a disease of runny, puffy eyes that lasted throughout his entire life. And I tell you, if you can swallow that, then you could make the Bible say anything you want it to. That is a flimsy basis of interpretation. Here's a much more accurate interpretation, I believe, that is borne out in Scripture. If you turn over to Acts chapter 15, this is where Paul was preaching in Lystra and Derbe. And, uh, excuse me, I believe it's Acts chapter 14. 
In Acts chapter 14, Paul was preaching there, and anyway, the people for a while thought that he was a god. And this is in Acts chapter 14, verse 11. It says, When the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in this speech, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of man. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. But anyway, Paul and Barnabas restrained the people from worshiping them and offering a sacrifice. And they stopped him. But then the next day, the people got mad at him. And the people from Antioch came to Iconium and persuaded the people. And it says in verse 19 that there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And so this is an instance where Paul was stoned and left for dead. He referred to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And personally, it's my opinion that he was dead. If he wasn't dead, he was so close to being dead that the people who were trying to kill him, it says in verse 19, Acts 14, 19, supposed he was dead. He was so close to dead, if he wasn't dead, that the people trying to kill him thought he was dead. So he was either dead or very, very close to it. And as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and it says he came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. That trip, I at one time figured this out and I can't remember, but it was miles. I think it was either 15 or 20 miles that he walked to the next town and the next day preached unto him. Guess where Iconium, Lystra, and Derby were? They were cities of a region called Galatia, and that's the people that Paul was speaking to in Galatians chapter 4. And he said, at the first, you took pity on me because of this infirmity in my flesh, and you would have plucked out your own eyes. Now, if he was talking about his infirmity being some kind of an eye problem, rather than just, you know, pulling out of the blue sky saying that he had some ancient disease, runny, puffy eyes. If you want to be honest with Scripture, it was exactly during this period of time when he was stoned and left for dead, and in less than 24 hours of being so close to dead that the people trying to kill him thought he was dead, he went preaching, and would it be inconceivable to believe that his eyes were hurting him because he had been stoned to death the day before. It took time for that to mend. And he said that it was only at the first. It is much more accurate with Scripture to compare Scripture with Scripture and say that if he did have any eye problems, it was because he had been stoned the day before and it was something that his body healed and got over. It's also possible that when Paul said that you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me, he could have been using that as a figure of speech in the same way that we say that person would give their right arm for me. Does that mean that you have a bad right arm? No, it's just a figure of speech that we use to say that, you know, this person would sacrifice anything for me. And so Paul could have been using it that way, saying you could have plucked out your own eye and have given it to me. He may not have had anything wrong with his eyes. It may have just been a figure of speech. If there was something wrong with his eyes, and he was referring to this literally, then I believe that it was talking about the fact that he probably had some damage to his eyes from the stoning the day before. And it was only temporary. He makes it very clear 
in the 13th verse that this infirmity in his flesh was at the first. Now, people who once again, who have believed that this is talking about him having some eye disease and that that was his thorn in the flesh, they go on into the sixth chapter of Galatians and they uh, take this verse in verse 11 that says, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. And from this, I have actually heard a person say that this letter to the Galatians, Paul was so nearly blind because of his eyesight problem that his letters were three and four inches tall. He had to write huge letters to be able to communicate. You know, if that was true, and he says here that he had written this with his own hand, and if it was true that he was referring to large size letters, could you even begin to comprehend how big this letter to the Galatians had to be? It would have had to have been volumes. I mean, nobody could have even carried it. You could have only had one word on a page. Count up how many words there are in the letter to the Galatians. That's not what he's talking about. If you go into the word for large in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, there's you know different words for talking about quantity or size. And the word used for large here is not the Greek word for size, but rather it's talking about quantity. In other words, when he says, you see how large a letter I have written unto you, what he's talking about is how long his letter was. In my Bible, there's one, two, three, four pages, and it's small print. And if you were to put that, like, say, on a regular sheet of uh, eight and a half by 11 paper that we use and just type it out double spaced, you know, it could be a 10 to 15 page letter. I would consider that a large letter, large in the sense that it's long, not big letters individually. Again, this is straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. People who use these scriptures to say that Paul had an eye disease are breaking every rule of interpretation in the Bible. They're just taking some reference and interpreting it any way they want to. If Paul did have any eye problems referred to in Galatians chapter 4, it was because he was stoned and left for dead the day before, and it was only temporary. I don't even believe that there is a correlation between what he's saying here in Galatians chapter 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about his thorn in the flesh. And if you will accept the things that I've already said about the thorn in the flesh, then I believe that that disproves also that this was talking about some type of a sickness. Rather, he was referring to the demonic messenger who just persecuted him. And we aren't redeemed from persecution. That is just very, very simple stuff. And I tell you, I I have given a lot of thought to this. I've listened to other people. I've heard them. And you know what? This is more honest. This is more consistent with Scripture than any of those other things. I believe that the reason people grab at Paul's thorn in the flesh and want to make it sickness is, again, this same thing that I mentioned at the beginning. It's a cop-out. It's a convenient theology. In other words, you don't have to really produce You can just live carnal. You don't have to seek God. You pray a prayer, and if the person doesn't get healed, then you say, well, it must have been like Paul's thorn in the flesh. God just wants you to bear it. And it's a cop-out. 
When the truth is that, no, God wants them healed. But you know what? He's got to have someone who can operate in faith and authority and take this power and make it manifest. And it puts responsibility on us. And we've become masters at dodging responsibility. Here's another passage of Scripture that I've heard people use to try and counter the fact that it's always God's will to heal. Out of 1 Timothy chapter 5, And in verse 23, Paul was talking to Timothy, who is like his son in the faith. And it says in 1 Timothy 5, 23, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. And I've actually heard people teach from this that Timothy had some chronic sickness that he never got healed of. And uh, therefore, if Timothy, who is Paul's right-hand man, didn't get healed then it's not God's will to heal us either. Well, again, this is one verse of Scripture. This is the only verse of Scripture in the New Testament that talks about Timothy and taking a little wine for his stomach's sake. There is nothing else to compare this with. And so really, anything you say about this is supposition. It is a supposition that he had some chronic sickness and that he never got healed of it. And therefore, this is proof that God doesn't want to heal us. That is an inaccurate, an unhonest interpretation of Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you want to just suppose something, here is a supposition that I believe is more accurate and people could probably relate to easier. And that is, it makes it very clear that whatever sickness he had was a stomach problem. And it was related to the water. Now what happens if you go into some third world countries and drink the water, you get, if it's Mexico, Montezuma's Revenge or whatever place you go to, you get some kind of a stomach problem because the water isn't good. Water, it's, And I haven't personally experienced this, but I have seen many people who travel with me to other countries who get sick drinking the water. I've heard horror stories of it. Everyone listening to this tape can relate to this, that the water is just unclean And there are times that it's better to drink something besides water. So Paul is telling Timothy, quit drinking the water because that's what's producing your stomach problems, but instead drink a little wine. This isn't some endorsement for medicine. I've heard people say that, that wine has medicinal qualities. And so Paul here is saying, take medicine for your stomach problems. No, it's very clear that this is a stomach problem that was related to contaminated water, and so quit drinking the water and drink wine. He could have said quit drinking the water and drink a soda or drink anything. They didn't have sodas then, so they drank wine. This is not saying that Timothy had some chronic problem from which he never got healed. This is just Paul telling Timothy, Timothy, quit drinking the water. That's what's causing you to have an upset stomach. That would be like me taking a student with me to a foreign country and say, now when you get there, don't drink the water, but instead drink something else. Drink bottled water or drink a Coke, but don't drink the water. That's all that he's saying. And people from this have made some kind of a doctrine that make it look like God wants us to be sick. That is inaccurate. That is not being honest with Scripture. Here's another passage of Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 20. It says, Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. And I've heard people before say, see, even 
one of Paul's companions, Trophimus, didn't get healed. And so, therefore, it must not be God's will to heal everybody. Well, there's no argument from me that not everybody gets healed. But that doesn't mean it's because God doesn't want them to be healed. Not everybody gets saved. But it's very obvious that God wants everyone saved. So, yes, just because a person is sick doesn't mean that God will them to be sick. Well, the inference here is, well, he was traveling with the Apostle Paul. If it was God's will, he would have received. I've had people come to me that way. And because some associate of mine, some employee of mine gets sick and, uh, you know, has some kind of a sickness or if they get an operation or if they wear glasses, I've had people come to me and say, well, why aren't they healed? If it was God's will to heal, how come they aren't healed? I can't get another person healed only on my faith. You don't get healed just, you know, by being around a person. It doesn't come by osmosis. You don't rub up against them and receive healing. People have to believe. And Trophimus had to believe. The scripture doesn't tell us why he was left at Miletum sick. Possibly he was believing. And it just took a brief period of time, and Paul didn't want to wait. He went on ahead. It's very obvious, as you continue to read in the book of Acts, that Trophimus rejoined Paul because he was in Jerusalem when Paul got thrown in prison. And so Trophimus didn't stay sick. He didn't stay at Miletum. It's possible that he was believing for his health, and he got it, and healing worked. And he definitely rejoined Paul later on. We don't know. Again, this is this is insufficient evidence for anybody to say that healing is not for us today or it's not God's will to heal everybody. Trophimus did get well. And so anyway, as far as I can tell, by being honest with Scripture, I've debunked the things that people use to say that certain people, God wanted to be sick. That is not true. I know some of you probably have a question about scriptures like Romans 8:28. God works all things together for good. I've got a tape entitled The Sovereignty of God that will deal with that. I just haven't got time on this tape to be able to go into that. But if you have a question about this, thinking, well, God controls everything, uh, it, a person couldn't be sick if God didn't allow it. That is not what the Word of God teaches. Again, God doesn't allow people to go to hell. In one sense, you could say he allows it, but it's not his will. He puts roadblocks in their way, but ultimately he gives us the choice. God doesn't control us like a pawn in a chess game. If you want more information on that, you can get that tape entitled The Sovereignty of God, and it will go into a lot more detail and uh, explain that. Somebody else might say, but wait a minute, in the Old Testament, there were people like Miriam that was struck with leprosy, in Numbers chapter 12 or 13. I forget the exact reference. But she was struck with leprosy. Uzziah, the uh, king, was struck with leprosy by God. God struck people with sickness and killed 185,000 people in one night. The angel of the Lord, the uh, death angel, went through the land of Egypt and killed all the firstborn with some type of a sickness or something. And they say God put sickness on people. Well, I agree. But you can't find a single one of those references where it was a blessing. When Miriam was struck with leprosy, prior to that, she was a great leader among the children of Israel. After that, the only thing said about her was she died and the people mourned for her. Her ministry was over. It was a punishment. It was a curse. Uzziah was a king that was mightily used of God. But after that, 
man, it's like the anointing lifted, and that guy, he just suffered the whole time. It was a curse. That sickness wasn't a blessing. It didn't help him. It hurt him. And the people that were killed by the death angel, the 185,000, didn't do them any good. It killed them. Might have made an example out of them, but it wasn't a blessing for them. Again, you can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and it says sickness is a curse. Health is a blessing. Sickness is not good. It is a curse. And there were times that God smote people with curses. But Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. As it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse. Yes, there are instances where God smote people with sickness, leprosy, diseases, blindness in uh, 2 Kings chapter 1. But it was never a blessing. It was always punishment. It was always a curse. And in the New Testament, we are redeemed from the curse. Another thing is some people will say, but if God doesn't hit you with sickness and if he doesn't correct you, how are you going to learn? Well, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. It says that God's word is how he reproves us and corrects us. God's system of correction is not sickness and disease, tragedy and stuff. God corrects us through his word. And I know some people are saying, well, not everybody obeys the word. Some people only respond when the, you know, everything in their life goes sour, tragedy. Well, they may, but that's not God's system. God's system is to teach you through the Word, through the Holy Spirit quickening the Word to you. Now, you can learn other ways, but that's not God's system. There's no doubt that certain people have become paraplegics, and because of that, they've learned to turn to God, and God has sustained them, and they have joy and peace, and they bless a lot of people, and that's good. But it's wrong for them to say God made them paraplegic so that they could learn this. No, God tried to teach them that through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God. If they didn't respond to God, you can learn another way. You can learn by hard knocks. If you live through it, it makes a great experience. But that's not God's system. God can work anything together for good, but not everything that happens to us comes from God. Sickness is not from God. God doesn't put sickness on you to humble you. God wants you well. That's the truth. And Paul was not afflicted by God. He was a messenger of Satan that came against him. God didn't refuse to heal him and tell him to just bear up with it. No, the Lord told him, you know what, Paul, I'll give you grace to endure all of the hardships that Satan, that people throw your way because he loved those people and he didn't want to just kill them and wipe them out and stop all of Paul's problems. There were other Pauls out there who needed to be converted and needed to be spokesmen for God. God loved them. He didn't want to wipe them out, and so he didn't stop the persecution against the Apostle Paul. That's what his thorn in the flesh was, was persecution, hardships that were given unto him by a demonic messenger that came and tried to beat him down and keep him from being exalted and used of God. I tell you, those are powerful truths, and they're completely consistent with the Word of God. 
It is not God's will for you to be sick. You need to quit hiding behind Paul's thorn in the flesh. You need to quit having a bias, a prejudice towards God putting sickness on you and going to the Word and trying to prove that. Instead, you need to approach it and honestly consider what we've talked about. Go to these things. Take it in context. Look at the words. Look up the Greek and the Hebrew words. Study it out in context. And I tell you, the things that I've taught will be proven to be true. It is a religious bias, prejudice, predetermination that God wants you to be sick. And it's done because it's a convenient theology that dodges responsibility And because that bias exists, people have gone to the Word of God and tried to make it say things it wasn't saying. Paul was not given some sickness by God. That's not true. I believe that these things are going to help you to establish that it is always God's will for you to be well. 